Our scripture reading today is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, and this is found on page 987 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible and would like one, please take that, that one, or if you know someone who would like a Bible, please take that to gift to them. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marcia, for reading God's word for us this morning. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, the Brookside Campus uh, pastor, and we're really glad that you're here with us this morning and um, celebrating with us in worship today. And uh, just want to say from the beginning this morning um, that uh, I know this is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. And uh, this morning we thought we'd give dads the gift they've always wanted on Father's Day, which is a message on lust and chastity. Um, <laughs> Okay, so I assure you that that wasn't part of the plan uh, when we laid out the series. We wanted to kind of preserve the historical order that the vices have been talked about in, and that happened to line up with, with Father's Day. Uh, and while talking about sexuality in church um, may be uncomfortable, I'm, I can assure you it probably won't be boring, so at least there's that this morning. And also for, for parents, um, while this morning's message it certainly won't be graphic anyway, there's not going to be any charts or diagrams or anything like that. Um, if you sense that you're not ready to have those conversations with your child yet, uh, and they're with you here in the service, we do offer children's programming um, during this service as we do every week, uh, birth through uh, fifth grade. So um, that's in the lower level, uh, and you can avail yourself of that if you desire. So before we look more closely at this passage of Scripture and this topic this morning, let me pray as we begin. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that you uh, speak to us in and about every area of life, and that you offer freedom and hope and forgiveness in every area of life. I pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us first to hear your word, and then um, by his power to obey it and respond to it in the way that you would desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the final message in the series we've been going through on the vices and virtues. They're sometimes called the seven deadly sins. Um, and the idea of vices, though, we've been using this language of vice in particular for a specific reason. The idea of a vice is, is it's not a specific act of sin, but rather this vice refers to this, this longevity, a, a habit, this thing that persists over time. The same with virtue, which we've been looking at corresponding virtues. Virtue is not just simply a, a single instance of goodness, a single act of goodness, but a, a life, a habit characterized by goodness. And that's why the vices, these 
things that we've been looking at in this list aren't necessarily sort of a list of the very worst possible sins you could ever commit. But they are considered deadly because over time, if they become a vice, they become a habit, left unchecked, they will make you into the sort of person who will turn away from God. We pointed out last week, if you were with us, you may remember that in the history of the church, gluttony, and which we looked at last week, and lust, were put at the end of the list because they were actually considered the least deadly of the sins. And why is that? Because in contrast to the, the other vices, the ones we've looked at, envy, greed, vainglory, sloth, these two at the end are different in that they are distortions of good God-given desires. You see, our desires for food and sex were given to us by God before sin ever entered the world. They are good gifts. And yes, they can go wrong, but they are fundamentally good things. While the other ones we've been looking at earlier in the series of vainglory, sloth, greed, those things only entered into our experience as human beings after we turned away from God. And so while lust is just another one of the vices, there's still something that I think when we come to this vice that we feel like is unique or different, doesn't it? Because, and I think if you think about it like this, if someone says to you after the sermon last week, man, I love food way too much. I seriously have a food problem. I think it's easy for us to sort of chuckle and say, yeah, me too. I know where you're coming from. But if someone says to you, yeah, I love sex way too much and I have a sex problem, we probably don't laugh in that moment and and we probably don't say, oh yeah, me too. Because there is a tendent to this, a unique sort of pain and guilt and shame that just doesn't attach itself to the other vices. And so let me say right from the beginning this morning, I recognize that. And I know that for every person probably sitting here this morning, that there is a unique story of hurt or pain or shame related to this. And I'm sorry, if whatever that might be, I can only begin to imagine the different struggles and pain that are in this room around this topic. You may have been violated, abused, You may experience guilt for the way that you have treated others. You may feel shame for things that you have done or thoughts you've had. And so right from the beginning, and I don't want anyone to miss this, let me just say this so clearly, no matter what has been done to you or what you have done, God loves you. He can make you whole. He can remove the shame. But now in this moment, some of you also may be thinking, but Bill, I mean, the whole reason that people experience so much guilt and shame around this is is precisely because Christians have have hung on to these outdated categories of lust and chastity. I mean, doesn't a conversation like this just take us back to the repressed sexuality of the Victorian age? Isn't that the, the problem with all of this? And there's some validity to that. I mean, there's been many times when Christians have talked about and treated sex and sexuality in in really unhealthy and deeply unbiblical ways that have led to repression and undue shame and guilt. Yet we also have to ask the question this morning, has our contemporary approach to sexuality fared any better? George Leonard was a writer and educator who was a leader in this sort of kind of sexual liberation movement in the 1960s who advocated for a free love approach to sexuality. 
However, by the 1980s, Leonard had, had changed his mind. He wrote a book titled The End of Sex, and in it he says this. I think this is fascinating. He says, I finally come to see that every game has rules and sex has rules, and that unless you play by the rules, you will find that sex can create a depth of loneliness that nothing else can. A depth of loneliness that nothing else can. It's powerful. And what I want to suggest this morning is this, this old Christian category, this, this vice of lust, is the thing that is behind sex that creates a depth of loneliness. Okay, but what are we actually talking about when we use the word lust? Kind of a working definition for us this morning is that, that lust is a distortion of the good gift of sex that turns it into a party for one. It turns it into something selfish. This means that even sex in marriage can be lustful if you make it all about you. You see, any time that we make sexual pleasure, whether actual or merely imagined in the mind, about us or our satisfaction alone, we engage in lust. Lust turns other people from, from human beings into object, into its rather than them's or you's. What we're going to see this morning is that the problem with lust is that it, it paradoxically asks way too little of sex and way too much at the same time. But the solution isn't to repress or repudiate or deny sexual desire. Far from it. In fact, we need to long for so much more than what lust desires. Long for so much more than what lust desires. So this morning, as we look at this together, we're going to see first that sex is a good gift from God. Second, that lust makes sex selfish. And believe it or not, that the virtue of chastity is better than it sounds. So sex is a gift. Lust makes it selfish. And chastity is better than it sounds. So the first thing we need to understand if we're going to grapple with this vice of lust is that sex and sexual desire aren't the problem. Simply experiencing sexual desire is not lust. You see, sex is a gift. It's a gift from God. Listen again to what Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And in this opening part of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is reminding this new church, which is made up of people from very different cultural and religious backgrounds who have become Christians, who have very different ways of understanding sex and sexuality. Some of them were Jews, some of them were Greek and Roman. He's reminding them what God's will for them is. And he points out that in the, the broadest terms, God's will for them is that they are sanctified. He uses this word that we don't use a lot in ordinary conversation, sanctification or sanctified, which simply means that it's God's will that they become more and more like Jesus, more and more like Christ, whole, 
holy human beings as God designed them to be. That's what sanctification is, this process of growing to become more and more like Jesus, more and more fully living into God's will for every aspect of our life. And part of that, Paul says, is abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, this is key. He doesn't say that they should abstain from sex. This is not a, a call to repudiate sex or sexual desire. He says that they should abstain from sexual immorality. He says they, they are to avoid sexual thoughts and activities that are outside of God's design. And while this may surprise you, Christianity actually has an incredibly high view of the goodness of sex and sexuality. It affirms it right from the beginning of the story that God made people in His image, male and female, with sexual desire. You see, sex is not the original sin. It's a part of God's good creation right from the beginning, and it tells the story of God's self-giving love. It's designed to produce intimacy in life. In the pages of Scripture, the Bible does not blush when it talks about sex. It celebrates it. In fact, there are passages in the Song of Solomon, a a Hebrew love poem in the Old Testament, that that may make you blush with its uninhibited celebration of sexual intimacy and desire between a husband and wife. But the Bible is also nuanced here. Because while it says that, yes, sex is a good gift from God, it also is clear that sex is not like the gift from God. That if you are, aren't having sex, or that if you never have sex in your life, that somehow you aren't living into everything that it means to be a human being. You see, Jesus, who is the truest and fullest expression of what it means to be a human being, never had sex. So when used according to God's design, sex has incredible power for good, but outside of God's design, it has incredible power for destruction and loneliness. See, in this way, it's not unlike fire, right? Fire in a fireplace is a a beautiful thing, a place of warmth and light and joy. But if that fire escapes the fireplace into the house or the fire ring into the forest, it all of a sudden takes this thing that was a place of beauty and warmth and it suddenly becomes this frightening, destructive thing. See, sex, when practiced according to God's design, it it takes us out of ourselves. It unites us to another and can have the power to actually create new life. However, when God's design for sex is ignored, it it turns us in on ourselves. It isolates us from one another. It causes disintegration. This is what happens in lust. Lust takes sex, which is designed by God, as a way to commit yourself exclusively, permanently, completely to another person in self-giving, self-sacrificial love, and it turns it into this thing that's just aimed at getting pleasure for me now when I want it. In short, lust makes sex selfish. That's what Paul picks up on in verse or chapter 4, verse 6, when he writes this, he says, in this, let no one transgress or wrong his brother in these matters, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. See, Paul says that, that lust transgresses and wrongs other people by making them merely a means to our own ends, our own ends of pleasure or desire, 
And when Paul uses the language of, of brother in this text, he isn't speaking of, of biological brothers and sisters, nor is he he's speaking just to men, but rather he's using the language of brother to refer to the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. One of the many different metaphors that the New Testament uses to talk about what the church is, is a family metaphor, that we are adopted by God into this new family. We become brothers and sisters. And he says, we wrong one another and others when we allow the vice of lust to take hold in our midst. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, which has been such a help to us throughout the series, she articulates this so well. She writes that lust pretends, and I love that she even uses that word pretends because it doesn't, it can't actually do this, but lust pretends that sex and sexual pleasure are a party for one. Lust makes sexual pleasure all about me. In lust, sexual pleasure is divorced from love and mutual self-giving, and when we lust, we certainly want nothing to do with giving life and the future commitments it might bring. You see, sex is designed as a commitment mechanism. It's why sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman runs so contrary to God's design. You see, sex is designed to be the sign of this covenant commitment, this joining together of two lives completely and exclusively. That in the covenant of marriage, you, you join yourself to someone emotionally, financially, legally, socially, every single way. And sex is designed to be a, a, a picture of that covenant that joins two into one. However, when sex is distorted by lust, it says, I, I don't want to be one with you and commit all that I am to you. I just want your body, whether in reality or on a screen or in my mind. You see, sex without a whole life commitment should seem as odd to us as it would be to set up a joint checking account with someone that you intend to share no other part of your life with. Right, can, you, can you imagine being at the bar, saying to the person next to you, hey, how about we get out of here and swing by Bank of America? <laughs> Open up a checking account to one another. According to the biblical design for sex, sex outside of the covenant of marriage should seem as laughable as that. Because it's designed to commit the whole of who you are to another person for the whole of your life. So it's in this way that lust asks far too little of sex. It wants pleasure without relationship, self-satisfaction without self-sacrifice. And pornography in particular attempts to make these promises, the, the promise of sexual pleasure without cost or commitment. But it's deadly. And often, I think, especially in the context of the church, pornography is viewed primarily as a male problem. But this simply isn't true. Women are affected by it as well. Lust is not a gendered vice. For example, one of three visitors to all adult websites are women. And 17% of women struggle with some form of pornography addiction. With the rise of, of Kindles and other e-readers, there's been an explosion of the consumption of, of romance and erotica. And when we assume that, that lust is only a male problem, I think we damage women in at least two ways. One, we subtly deny their sexuality. We sort of say, oh, well, only men really like sex. 
And we also increase the shame and stigma for women who are caught in the trap of lust. Just this month, Kay Warren, who was a co-founder with her husband, Rick Warren, of Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in the U.S., she wrote in Christianity Today about her attraction to pornography as a teenager and, and the shame that she felt. She, she wrote, how can I look at pornography? I love Jesus. I want to be a missionary. She said, this is as a, as a teenager, I'll never look at it again, I told myself. And I didn't until the next time and the time after that and the time after that. Before long, I was hooked. So while lust and pornography are certainly things that both men and women struggle with, it is also true that that women experience the consequences of pornography more acutely. Because, in fact, the research suggests that, that many women who visit pornography sites do so in order to understand what men want or what they perceive men to want. And perhaps no other industry exploits women and children more in the industry of pornography and sex work. So at one level, sex asks too little, or lust, I should say, asks too little of sex. It it just wants pleasure and nothing else. However, on another level, lust asks way too much of sex, especially in a cultural context like ours that increasingly is made up of of people, and whether you're a Christian or not, this is the water in which we swim, that increasingly seeks to find meaning and significance apart from God. In that cultural context, sex becomes one of the closest experiences available to us of transcendence. So in other words, we look to sex to provide what only God can provide for us. In lust, we look to sex to provide comfort, meaning, relationship, salvation. However, sex simply cannot bear the weight of those expectations. It was never designed to carry all of that to be all that for us. And so if we try to find all those things that only God can provide us in sex, that sex actually begins to collapse under its own weight, it will always let us down and leave us longing for more. Which is why, left unchecked, the vice of lust will over time enslave us. Look again at Paul's strong warning here in verses 3 through 5. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, we talked about that, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul calls his readers to learn how to control their, their bodies in holiness and honor because otherwise he recognizes that these appetites will enslave them. And we saw this dynamic at work last week with food, right? It's the same thing with gluttony. A good gift distorted by a vice can enslave and consume us, causing us to look to it for things that only God can provide. It wants more and more and more of us until we have nothing left. So now let me just pause here and say two things at this point. First, if you are trapped in this, if you feel the slavery of it, I just want to say to this one right now that there is hope. In and through the gospel, there is actually hope that we can escape this vice and learn to control our bodies in holiness and honor. And and more on that in a moment. But second, I also want to say this morning, if you have been 
wronged sexually, abused, mistreated in this way, that God cares about that. And He will make it right in the end. And did you catch that in verse 6 that we read earlier? It says that God is an avenger. You see, He takes up the cause of justice for those who have been abused and wronged sexually. He has not forgotten you and your pain. And in the end, He will finally deal with it justly. And He's already begun to do that work even now. So in short, lust attempts to make sex both nothing, it's just an appetite, and everything. It's our only hope for transcendence, relationship, and meaning all at the same time. It wants too much and too little. I think Lauren Winter summarizes this well. She says, we Christians do not want to, cannot accept the culture's story about sex, that sex is only for fun, that sex has no consequences, that what I do with my body is none of your business, that the goodness of sex is evaluated by the mind-blowingness of the orgasm. But nor can we err on the other side of Gnosticism that tells us that sexual desire is bad, that the body belongs, bodily longings are to be stamped out of existence. Neither of these is the Christian approach. For the Christian approach is neither hedonism nor obliteration, it is discipline. And that discipline in the history of the church has been called chastity. And I assure you that chastity is better than it sounds. I mean, really, it couldn't be worse than it sounds, I don't think. Um, so, so stay with me here towards the end. That, that chastity is simply how the church has talked about embodying our sexuality according to God's design. Uh, look at what Paul says here in verses 7 and 8. This is kind of a summary of it. He says, Therefore God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, in every aspect of life. And, and chastity is what holiness looks like in the aspect of our life that relates to sexuality. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God has called us to a life of, of holiness, of wholeness in every area. And when we disregard that call, we, we disregard him. But the good news is that God has not merely called us to be holy. He has actually made us holy. When we place our faith and hope in Christ, we are called holy, clean, set apart, whole. In fact, Paul begins another one of his letters that we have as the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians by calling the people he's writing to holy. And if you read on in the letter of 1 Corinthians, you find out quickly that these people are far from exemplars of the, the virtues of chastity. This is a really sexually messed up church. And yet Paul calls them holy in Christ. So no matter what you have done, what has been done to you, in Christ you are, you can be made holy. You see, chastity is not a rule book of do's or don'ts, nor is it just for unmarried people. And this is where DeYoung is helpful again. She says, chastity, it's a pro-love lifestyle, and therefore, virtue one needs, whether single, married, old, or young. Chastity is not something you need only when you are dating or surfing the internet. It is a quality of one's character, evident in all areas of life. Chastity's fundamental question is not, how far can I go on a date without crossing some invisible line of sin? But rather, how can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversation, my behavior 
make me a person who's best prepared to give and receive love in relationship with others. And she adds later on, to channel and control sexual desire is to empower ourselves to love. You see, chastity, like all of the spiritual disciplines, isn't easy. In fact, it's very difficult. But it produces true freedom and joy and virtue and happiness and flourishing. However, so often it's only been seen as a spiritual discipline for for those who are unmarried. But, But chastity is both for the married and the unmarried. In marriage, it looks like exclusive faithfulness to one's spouse. And in unmarriage, it looks like abstinence from sexual practice. But this does not mean, however, that unmarried people don't or shouldn't experience sexual desire. In fact, singleness is a vital part of the witness of the church. Lauren Winter writes that singleness instructs the church in other lessons just as vital as those taught by marriage. Singleness reminds Christians that the church is our primary family. Single people witness to the Christian hope that the kingdom of God unfolds not principally when we nurture our nuclear families, but as theologian Stanley Hauwas explains it, when we show hospitality to the stranger. So whether married or unmarried, young or old, here are four next steps that will help us in developing and deepening in this practice, this discipline of, of chastity. And first, we have to fight shame. We have to fight shame if we're going to make any progress in this. The vice of lust, it's like a fungus. It grows best in the dark. And the Christian community is a community of confession and light and repentance. You see, when we confess, we rob lust of its power and shame begins to dissipate. Now, this is not an easy thing to do, but it is truly the only way. Invite others into this with you, especially with pornography, because it is so pervasive, it's so easily accessed, and yet it can remain so hidden. But over time, it will destroy. So tell someone you're struggling. Tell one of us as your pastors. I assure you, you will not find judgment, but hope when you do. This is true whether you're trapped in the vice of lust or you have experienced abuse or being wrong because of someone else's lust. When we're able to talk with people we trust who are safe, shame both because of our own sin and sin done against us begins to lose its power. If we want to live into this discipline, we have to fight shame. Second, we also have to set boundaries. Because while we will never be able to avoid the temptation of lust completely, it comes looking for us as often as we go looking for it, we can put measures in place to help. Martin Luther famously said that you can't keep birds from landing on your head, but you can keep them from making a nest there. So for the web, for your internet browsing, there's great software tools like Covenant Eyes or X3 Watch, Accountable to You. There's lots of different ones out there that allow you to share your your internet browsing history with a a safe group of people to hold you accountable. 
But the boundary setting also must begin in, in our minds as well, because as Jesus so powerfully states in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who looks on another person lustfully has already committed adultery with them. The, the battle, the, the war is won or lost in, in the mind long before it ever works itself out into any kind of an action. I think few contemporary voices have stated this, this need for boundaries more, more poignantly than the correspondent for the Atlantic and best-selling author, uh, Tanasi Coates. He, he says this, and I don't, I don't know his, his faith story, his faith background. I suspect that he's not writing from a, a, an explicitly Christian framework. But he writes this, he says, I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years, and in those years I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son. But that's not because I'm an especially good or true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind. But I am also a dude who believes in guardrails, as a buddy of mine once put it. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself why I'm having a second drink and why I'm not, why I'm going to a party and why I'm not. I believe that the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I'm a good man. I'm not a good man, but I'm prepared to be an honorable one. What a powerful framing. The battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. What are the boundaries we've put in place, the guardrails? Third, if we are to grow in this discipline of chastity, we, we must cultivate friendship. Maybe it seems a bit odd at first. We must cultivate friendship. But listen to what Rebecca DeYoung writes. She says, The best advice then for resisting loss is not to get an internet filter, although you should do that too, but to have good friends. Because, she writes, if we have genuine friendships in which we learn to give and receive love in healthy and satisfying ways, we will be less inclined to wander off looking for sham substitutes and quick fixes. See, it's in the context of friendship that we learn to love one another, to serve one another, to, to find enjoyment and fulfillment and conversation and exchange that, that isn't predicated on, on romance or, or seeking a sexual relationship. In friendship, we learn to treat other people as people, not as commodities. We learn to ask, how can I appreciate and care for this person instead of asking, how can this person benefit me? And then finally, if we want to practice this discipline well, we must learn to be disappointed. We must learn to be disappointed. What do I mean by that? Be disappointed. This is what I mean. No one is ever completely sexually satisfied. And that's actually a good thing. Because sex was never meant to satisfy our desires, but to point us to a greater desire, a greater longing for the one who made us, who is redeeming us, who gave us sex and sexual desire as a way to teach us about his own great love and passionate desire. Because you see, Jesus does not love you with a disinterested duty or obligation, but he loves you with a passionate desire. He loved you so much that He gave His life for you to redeem you, to make you holy, to make you clean, to forgive you, to make you whole. Not because He, he had to, but because He loves you. 
In Jesus, you find one who knows you better than anyone else. He knows the depth of your shame and sin and pain to a greater extent than even you do, and he loves you just the same. You see, in Jesus, you do not have God as your judge scowling at you. No, in Jesus, you have God's face shining on you, his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. Jesus does not stand to condemn you, but to forgive you and make you whole. As Martin Luther also proclaimed, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. So when you are overwhelmed with guilt and shame, call to mind that great hymn that we sang earlier, before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, of word I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Jesus is for you. He knows you and still loves you. In Jesus we have the one person who satisfied our desire to be fully known without the fear of being rejected. And with that sort of love, we are transformed into holy people who can love one another in honor and purity and goodness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in Jesus you welcome us and you offer us forgiveness and wholeness and peace. Would every desire that we have, whether for food or for sex or for anything else, would you allow us to see to where it ultimately points us and that is to you and your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.